Hey friends, this is Andrea and you're listening to The Courage Cast and I'm so thrilled that you've joined me from wherever you may find yourself in the world. I know that many of you listen from all over the globe and I'm so thankful that you do. I'd love to connect with you. So make sure you follow me on Instagram at at or at the dot courage cast and say hi. Let me know where you're from. I'd love to know what got you started listening to this little podcast and how we can connect and how maybe I can encourage and inspire you and vice versa because I know I have a lot to learn from so many of you. So please do reach out. Now, today's episode is going to be pretty fantastic. I do, I have to say, I'm really excited about my guest. It's someone I've just recently met, but our conversation was so enlightening and so encouraging to me. And I think I learned a lot and I had a few aha moments during our conversation. And it's something that we often don't talk about. It's a little bit taboo because we're not really sure what to ask when it comes to race equality, gender equality, age equality, and we hit all of those topics. And my guest today is Nesh Pillay, who is the founder of Press Pillay here in Toronto. And she is a digital marketing expert, and she has so many great nuggets to share with us today about how she is using her company to bridge that gap between equality and empathy. And so I'm so excited for you to hear what we have to talk about. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Nash Pillay. You're listening to The Courage Cast, a show to equip and empower women to live bravely. Each week, we'll share coaching conversations and stories of women who are willing to face their fear and pursue their purpose. Here's your host, life coach, author, and your secret weapon. Nash, I am so thrilled to have you on the Courage Cast today, and you are just so lovely, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to getting to know you and also sharing a bit of what you do and your story. So thank you for being on the Courage Cast today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I want to jump right into it, and I want you to just tell us a little about yourself and the journey you're on and what you do, because I think it's pretty cool. Awesome, thank you. So um, I'm gonna try to give you the Spark Notes version because you're gonna need about 28 years <laughs> if you wanna hear the whole thing. Um, but I run a PR digital marketing agency called Press Play, but we, uh, we say it's PR with a purpose. So we kind of take a socially innovative approach to what we do. You know, starting the business, I, I don't know that I ever thought uh, growing up that I would uh, be an entrepreneur. Now that I look back, I think like the signs and symptoms were there from the time I was born, but it wasn't until I had my daughter a few years ago um, and I got very, very sick when she was born. So I, I did, I was doing, you know, PR on the side, but I was, I was actually um, heading up the marketing department of an ad tech agency. Um, and I got very like incredibly sick, like to the point of death. And so, uh, well, didn't die, obviously. <laughs> well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not doing this podcast from beyond the grave. Don't worry. <laughs> but uh, when my daughter was born, you know, and I kind of held her in my arms, and you know, only kind of appreciated her because you know I had postpartum depression. It's a whole other thing. But um, I really started to think, you know, do I want to be waking up and going to a job where I'm miserable every day? I mean, I liked the job; it was fine, but it was sort of like not really um, 
having a voice and things like that and sort of seeing the things in the industry that needed to happen and seeing that they weren't happening uh, that for me was really, really tough. Um, you know, so I really think that becoming a mom um, and then uh, subsequently the postpartum depression gave me this like sense of purpose and this sense of self because suddenly I wasn't making these choices just for myself anymore. I was making them for my daughter and like looking at the long term um, more and more. You know, I started the agency and it's, it's been great. It was wonderful, but something still felt uh, missing. Like I had a bed to sleep on at night now that I was bringing in clients, but I didn't, I still, I couldn't sleep at night. You know, something was missing. Something was off. I started thinking about ways that the agency could take a socially innovative approach. A, a really, really close cousin of mine actually um, in South Africa, which is where I'm from, mm -hmm. uh, he passed away. I was born in apartheid South Africa. I'm a woman of color. And so, you know, some of the things that I'm doing is that's probably why a lot of it was unfathomable to me. And I think it's unfathomable to a lot of people in South Africa and a lot of kids, especially. And so I started to think about ways that we could, uh, you know, in those formative years, get those kids thinking about their futures and really like opening up their minds to the possibilities. So what we what we founded is something called the Caleb Project, uh, Caleb being my cousin. And what uh, we will be doing through that is going to underserved communities, both across Canada and across the world, and doing um, actually empathy and uh, design thinking workshops with children who are about 13. 12 or 13 is the age we're hoping for. We do these workshops to sort of begin the process of them thinking, you know, empathetically. Research shows that by thinking em empathetically and thinking, using design thinking, kids are more likely to take on leadership roles. So we sort of do these workshops with kids and then we set them up with an online mentor uh, for five years. So from, you know, the age of 13 to the age of 18, which is really when they're going to be making those decisions of like, do I continue school? What do I do after? They sort of have that guidance and they're not left on their own, you know, to, the, to just kind of figure out what they want to do. And, and, you know, hopefully we can help spark some change and inspire some kids. I love that. I actually was just listening to a podcast this morning and it reminded me, it was talking about mentorship at that age, at that really pivotal age of like 12 years old and how it went, that's the time when kids are pulling away from their parents. Yeah. And if they're in a community maybe where there's absent parents or um, there's a lot of other crisis or trauma in their lives that really is then a pivotal point for them. And so what you're doing is so amazing to set them up with that guidance. Now, can you like share a little bit about like, what is it that you hope to teach them? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know, from the moment we're born, really, and maybe even before that, we're, we're taught our limits, right? For women, I'm sure we hear a lot like, oh, like you shouldn't sit that way, or, you know, that might give people the wrong idea. For women of color, for people of color, that's a whole other thing. And I think that you spend your life being taught these limits by society, by what you see. And it's almost like you're, it's almost these limits are just based, just building prison bars around yourself. And so by the time you find that you've reached adulthood, you're basically trapped into these confines. And so what I'd, what I'd like to really do is tell these kids like, hey, 
you know, take a second, like this is all perception. Every single one of these prison bars, every single one of these limits, it, it's all perception. It doesn't actually exist. It's not real, you know, because uh, if, you know, I, you know, and I am a, a wife and I am a mom and I have a loving, amazing partner and family, but, you know, if I decided not to get married and have a kid, like what's the actual worst that would happen? You know, like I, um, many years ago, I, I took the step uh, to deciding not to become a doctor, like not a brown doctor. That's, that's big stuff yeah. uh, in our family. But, uh, you know, I, I had to think like, what is the actual worst that could happen if I didn't become a doctor? And, and, and I, I asked myself this like every day, even now, you know, like when I'm making decisions, um, we're so often fueled by these, these arbitrary limits and these anxieties that if you just ask yourself that question, um, you become limitless. And, and I know that sounds kind of cheesy and it, it sounds- Absolutely um, not. <laughs> I don't mean for it to sound sort of elementary because I know, you know, some people have limits that are beyond even the scope of our imagination. And I understand that. And there are barriers and there are financial barriers and there are financial barriers and there are barriers that we can't really begin to imagine. But uh, ultimately, all those barriers are imagined. And I think that if we can get beyond that and if we can really share that with other kids, you know, things would be great. Like, yeah, I, I, I kind of, um, I joke that I walk around with the confidence of a white man. <laughs> so I want all these kids to walk around with the purpose and confidence of a white man. Which, you know, I, I want to talk about that because I think it's really important. And, and I, I wanted to laugh and then I hesitated to laugh because I thought to myself, how true and yet how sad that yeah. statement really is. And you know, as a, you know, female white woman myself, you know, I don't really, I can never say that I would even begin to understand what anyone else goes through that is a woman of color, a man of color. And, and it's only been probably in the past few years that I've really begin to, or begun, sorry, to take inventory of what does racial prejudice really look like? And and I never thought I was racist at all or prejudiced at all. Like, I mean, I grew up in Canada. I was in Ottawa growing up and like now in Toronto. But I feel like my perceptions have been challenged so much and I think for the better. And so I would love to hear from your perspective. Um, what does that look like? You know, we all, like you said, we all have these limitations. We all have even perceived limitations, what we think um, we can do or, or what we can't do. What is that like for you? Can you share that with me? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so conversation, I talk about it a lot and it actually on some level and I joke about it a lot. It makes me almost a little uncomfortable because we all actually are subject to um, those biases and those prejudices, racial or not, that we're just kind of taught, you know, from the get go. Mm -hmm. um, for me, so so my background is I was born actually uh, the year that apartheid ended in South Africa, um, you know, and when Nelson Mandela was released and things like that. And so while uh, legally apartheid has ended in South Africa, I will say in the past, you know, three decades has made great progress. There's still a lot of work to be done. It's, it's hard for me to really verbalize it in some ways because uh, 
you know, in certain areas, like, and I will say, I, I recognize in Canada that it's, it's a lot different, you know, and I appreciate that you sort of are challenging those biases within yourself because the honest truth is we all have them, you know, and, and whenever I make jokes about white guys, um, some people get mad, <laughs> get mad at me, but it's like, it's not, it's not a bad thing to be a white guy, you know, like if I had that, if I had those privileges, I would work those privileges, absolutely, you know, do what you have to, but you can, you can benefit you can benefit from what you were born with while also recognizing that others don't necessarily have those and just kind of like reach out a hand, you know, like um, have more women involved in what you're doing and have more women of color, especially involved in what you're doing, recognizing that there are extra um, sort of barriers that these people have had to face. So for me, it's just really been fighting against social expectations a lot, you know, I don't think that even my parents are, are very supportive, but I think even my extended family may not see me as being like, you know, a good brown South African girl. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't um, sit with my kid all the time. There are times I miss putting her to bed. I don't um, clean the house, you know, like, <laughs> there are little things like wife. That. Mom yeah. Things. Yeah. Yeah. I've really sort of broken out of those molds. And, you know, even people who love me will joke like, oh, you're so lazy and this and that. But it's like, I'm out like building a company and creating jobs and doing all these things. So like, yeah, I don't like to do dishes. And I don't fit that, you know, if my husband's not doing dishes, which he does, he's amazing. Mm -hmm. But if my husband's not doing dishes, he doesn't get that same sort of rhetoric, you know, people jokingly will call me a bad mom, and it really hurts. Um, but it's because there are these underlying expectations that like now you're a mom or, you know, and I think that these, um, for a lot of women of color, not all of us, for a lot of these, a lot of these beliefs are more antiquated than it may be for like someone who's white North American. Um, so you're fighting against these barriers, you know, like there's this internal voice in your head that's saying like, oh my God, am I a bad mom? You know, like I feel extra guilty, probably more guilty leaving my daughter uh, than my husband would because in, in addition to like that normal guilt that you have as a parent, I have that guilt because of public perception. Um, and it sucks and it's tough, but it's, you know, not something to feel sorry about or anything. It's just that some people are born with certain barriers and uh, we have to help each other overcome those barriers. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you're, you know, um, I'm, I'm kind of equating now or understanding a little bit more the difference between, you know, a real barrier and a perceived barrier. And, and so when we talk about that with, you know, you know, going back to the Kayla project and, and helping young people to really move past those barriers and those limitations, a lot of times when I'm working with clients, um, we talk about, you know, what is that negative belief you have about your life and the narrative you have told yourself about your story. And a lot of that does come from uh, the generation before them. So what their parents believed about money, they believe about money. What their Absolutely. parents believed about success, they believe about success. So we have these limitations that we place on ourselves based upon what we know. And what, and then we create a narrative around that. 
How do you begin to um, change that narrative for young people and help guide them to believe that anything's possible for their lives? I think it's just I challenge them, right? And I, I do that even with my younger sisters. I mean, it's a matter of con- consistently asking yourself, like, what's the actual worst that could happen? Because I do believe as long as we've, as humans, like, as long as we've got our basic needs met, we're okay, you know? What's the worst that could happen if you if you go to school or, or, or if you further your education or if you don't or if you start a business or if you finally, I don't know, um, learn that language you've been wanting to learn. Like, yes, it's hard. You know, and, and people, whenever I, I talk to people about this and I have certain of cli- clients of mine, like I do PR, but I find a lot of times I'm like a life coach yeah, in, I'm sure. in some of these things, you know? So I'm like, why don't we go ahead and why don't we do this? Or why don't you own your narrative here? And um, it's always like, oh, but like, what if people might think this, or what if this goes badly, or what if, what if this person is this, and what if this happens and this and this, and then it's a legal issue? And I'm like, these are a lot of what ifs, and you're making a lot of assumptions. Like, what's the actual worst that could happen? And a lot of the times, the answer is nothing. You know, even when it comes to financial concerns, and I'm fully aware that me having this opinion comes from a place of privilege, and I recognize that, um, but from from the financial perspective too is you know i've seen people like rise with a ton of money and then fall and have nothing at all but you know what they still have their lives and like money is one of those things that like it comes and it goes um so i don't you know obviously recommend gambling or anything but when it comes to your business it's kind of like make that investment take that risk um because what is the actual worst that could happen Mm -hmm. and even when we are positioned in a place where we can learn to overcome or bounce back from things. If the actual worst does happen, we can bounce back. Absolutely. And better for it. For sure, for sure. Okay, so let me ask you that question. What is the worst that can happen in your life? You know, growing up in North America where success is so readily available and it's easily accessible, yet we think it's so far away we place all of these limitations on ourselves. And really, they're just our perceived reality. They aren't always real, which means that we can easily overcome them. We just have to change our mindset. Whereas there are people in the world who are overcoming major obstacles that are not just perceived, but they are real. And you know what? It really doesn't matter what kind of obstacle you overcome. When you change your mindset around what is possible for your life, no matter what the circumstance, that is when you will fully realize your true potential. And then success is right around the corner from there. So as Nesh and I continue the conversation, we talk about what is the worst that could happen. The real life example for me that sticks out most in my mind is, again, coming from a place of, I think, like relatively, like for a North American hearing the apartheid South African thing, it's like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I still, I consider myself as having come from privilege because um, my parents were able to provide a lifestyle for my sisters and myself and opportunities for us that just not a lot of people in South Africa have or had. Um so, so for us, you know, my, my dad had a really good job as an engineer. So it was seemingly a, a good job for a, a South African of color at the time. Um, and my parents moved us to Canada 
uh, because they knew they were they already knew from the moment we were born what those glass ceilings would be and they 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 didn't want us to to be held down by those barriers um we moved to canada and we didn't my dad didn't have a job offer we didn't have anything and you know we didn't even have furniture i don't think and i remember he went from being one of the most successful like engineers businessmen in south africa to uh, delivering newspapers um and I remember one day he came home at like three in the morning and like had been skunked, um, you know, but this is what he did, what he had to do uh, while he was looking for a job here. And eventually he, he got a great job and he worked his way up and we moved to New York and, you know, we, we accumulated all this wealth again. And then in 2008, when the economy went bad, his company was bought out and uh, he lost his job again. And so suddenly a couple of investments went bad, whatever. Suddenly my parents were back in that spot that they were when we first moved here, you know? And so financially they pretty much had uh, lost everything. And I think it was hard to watch. It was really hard for them. It was hard as kids to like watch your parents feeling down and feeling um, upset, but it, it's so inspiring because even though my parents felt like the worst had happened at certain points, like they just actually bought a new house and it's, it's such a silly thing, but it's, it's so indicative of the fact that like, the money, it comes and it goes, like we have each other and we've been happy throughout all of this, you know, even through the disappointments. And, and when you understand that, when you understand um, the fluidity of money, when you have it, it's that much sweeter. But then when you don't, you're still fine. And, and, and uh, I used to think that uh, detaching yourself from you know, like I've been trying to read about spirituality and things like that. And I used to think that detaching yourself from worldly good meant, you know, giving up everything and only eating like one grain and, you know, using certain cottons. Like, I don't know. I just, I thought it was giving up any sort of luxuries in life, but I actually think it's just like detaching our, um, ourselves from money and, and uh, equating our value and worth to money because it really is, in the grand scheme of things, even money is sort of a perceived thing. It's all nothing. It's fluid. It comes in and goes. It really is. You know, interestingly, when I was younger, my mom and my dad both, but my mom in particular, she is very generous and she would give away things in our house. She would give away clothes. She would give away the shirt off her back. You know, she is just a generous person and she's always looking to gift people. And for some reason, I don't, don't know why, but I developed this um, almost hatred of it. I don't know why. I mean, that sounds terrible and I even hate to admit it, but I just didn't want to see things being given away all the time. And it produced within me not necessarily a spirit of generosity. And I had a hard time later on giving things away, whether it's buying someone a cup of coffee, taking someone out to eat. And here my mom had done this amazing thing, you know, trying to teach uh, my brother and I about generosity and helping people um, in any way, even if they were well off, like it didn't matter. She was always just going to help. And for me, it was something that I despised and I had to change that narrative. And I don't know why it is that I had all of a sudden wanted to hoard everything, but it was, if I had this um, thought in my mind that, you know, what, I really need to keep everything around me just in case it goes bad, just, you know, yeah. and so I've had to, as an adult, really work through that and 
break that in my life. And I mean, ha- happy to say I'm more generous than I have been <laughs> in, in the Good, past. Good, because I need a favor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even that, you know. Can I have that sweater off your back? <laughs> and it's so funny because I've, I really have to think about that. I really have to process through when people ask me for things or, um, you know, can I have a favor, whether it's monetary or not. And, and yet I had parents who were the complete opposite. And, and so it's interesting how we can sometimes develop something from them or because of what we've learned. But it sounds like for you, with your parents, you were taught some really valuable lessons about their financial journey. Yeah, it was, it was honestly, I feel so lucky, you know, at the time, especially like being privileged in the way I I think that we were, um, it was so easy to feel sorry for ourselves at certain points, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but now just understanding the value of things and also, um, back to your point about giving things away. It's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, you always, when someone asks for something that you've acquired, uh, whether it's a dollar or whether it's, you know, a cup of coffee, you kind of, subconsciously will think of like your journey to, to get that, right? Like I worked hard for this and like, now I'm just giving it to you. There's two, there's two sides to that. Number one, sometimes even when you work hard, you're going to need a little help. It just happens. Uh, the other thing is, uh, and I guess I'm going to use this example. I'm airing everyone's dirty wonder, but <laughs> uh, too, a few worry. years ago, um, <laughs> our parents are going to call us later. Yeah. What? Don't listen um, to this mom and dad. <laughs> I don't think my parents know what a podcast is. We're fine. Um, uh, so a few years ago, my husband and I were with some friends uh, watching a movie in the park in Brooklyn. And um, my husband was sitting on a comforter of ours and we were walking um, back through the streets looking for a cab afterwards. And uh, someone who is homeless just like was like, hey, can I have your blanket? And my husband, he's a great, wonderful guy, but it's just almost like instinctually, he was like, no, sorry, and like kept walking. And then I stopped him and I was like, babe, I mean, if we lose out on this comforter, it's not that great of a loss to us, uh, but giving this to someone could make someone's evening, yes. you know? And so kind of put th- putting things into perspective like that. So even though, yes, we worked for that comforter, like whatever, say it cost... I don't know. I don't even know what the comforter costs. Um, whatever. Say it's, it's $20 worth. That's not right. $100 worth. That $100, like even though it's like not nothing money, like it's not gonna, it's not gonna make us go hungry or anything like that. Whereas giving this away to someone could be the difference between having a warm place to sleep at night and not, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that even though that's valued at $100 to us, like that could be that that's like a thousand dollars to someone else. If that makes sense. I don't know if I'm, if I'm babbling or no, not. You know what? It's so funny you say that because when I lived in Memphis, um, this is probably back in 2000 and probably six, seven, I don't remember exactly the date when um, Hurricane Katrina came through in the South. And yeah. there were a lot of displaced people that came up into Memphis and were staying because their homes were completely wiped out with the flooding. And I remember going to a church and donating some items. And one of the things that I donated was my um, duvet. And it was like the duvet blanket with the duvet cover. 
And Mm -hmm. because they were putting people in the gymnasium of this huge church and in mats and they just needed bedding for people. Right. And I remember thinking about, you know, for me, that was a huge stretch. I was a school teacher. I wasn't really making a ton of money and, you know, it was something I used. I liked it. And I remember going and dropping it off and feeling like, oh, I really do like this duvet. But these people have absolutely nothing. And yet the resiliency of the human spirit um, for people to rebuild their lives. I've heard some stories that have come out of people like losing absolutely everything and rebuilding their lives and, and really changing their own story and the story of so many others. There was one thing that we had chatted about and it wasn't on this conversation, but it was talking, you had talked about equality through empathy and how you do that through your company. Can you share a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, am a staunch believer that empathy can change the world. And again, I know that sounds so incredibly elementary and uh, maybe a little idealistic, uh, but it's so easy to forget about other people. You know, like when we're in a conversation and we get angry, uh, we're thinking about our anger at that time. And we're not necessarily thinking about um, the other person. And that's a small example. Uh, The example I like to use is, um, you know, and and in a lot of communities, out of necessity, empathy is a value that's just kind of shut away. And that's completely understandable, right? Like when you don't have electricity or don't know where your next meal is coming from, you don't really have a moment to be empathetic. And so because of the need that was, I would say, born, especially again, during uh, apartheid, I was raised with with values like, well, charity begins at home and clean your backyard before you want to clean your neighbor's backyard. And it's basically just keep your head down, you know, don't don't do anything you're not supposed to just just be cool, man, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is essentially what those things are saying. But what I've found, um, and again, this is all just my theory, is in places like South Africa. So South Africa right now has this really high crime rate, and and people are empathetic to people that they consider to be their own. So in the Indian community in South Africa, if a crime happens, it's like sad, but if it happens to an Indian person, it's even sadder. Oh, did you hear about this person who got robbed? It was an Indian lady, you know, and so suddenly it's way more you know, and it's, it's great, like you're a part of your tribe, but, but sort of like that lack of empathy for other people, it really uh, is a problem. And I think it goes both ways too, because the people committing these crimes, you're so caught up in your own needs at that moment, understandable. Everyone's got to feed their families that you, you forget to be empathetic to the person that you're, um, you're robbing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, again, it goes both ways. When I talk about equality, for example, racial equality, I've I've spoken to a lot of people who have companies that are primarily men, primarily white, you know, you've you've seen them. And I'm like, hey, why don't you hire more people of color? And and they say, well, well, I don't, you know, they pretend they, they do sort of like the colorblind thing, which is like, oh, I don't see color. I don't see sex. I just... Uh, hire whoever the best person is. And I think that in and of itself is just putting blinders on because then you're not being empathetic to the fact that, uh, you know, someone may have to put in very little work 
to get the same position as someone else. And you have to be empathetic and aware of those journeys. And I think that overall as humans, like in order for our species to survive, uh, we need to stop being quite so individualistic. Because yes, of course, it's important to, you know, survival of the fittest, like it's important to do well yourself. But if we're all taking care of ourselves so much, then eventually, like, there's just going to be like one of us left. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's a whole different problem. So when you started your company, and you, you went from working from another agency, and then you started your own, how did you begin to build that culture and hiring people and forming a team around you? Absolutely. So my team is, uh, I jokingly used to call us a family, but, but I really do feel like we are a family now. Being a small company, hiring someone is something I take very seriously. You know, it's not just like, oh, I'm hiring whatever, whoever seems okay. I think that it's important that it's a great fit, both for press play, but also for the person, because I want to feel like whoever comes onto our team is going to benefit from this role. So the way we usually do it is actually it's a longer term process. Everyone on our team right now started as an intern and then came on as a freelancer and then moved into a full-time position. And it's really important to make sure that those values are at the forefront of the team as well as myself, you know, because like this company is not it's like my ideas, but that's pretty much it. And I really want the team to feel like they can make a difference and they can feel valued. And um, my team's four now, so we're pretty small. But as we grow, I I understand that that's going to be harder and harder to do. But I think by keeping the company culture at the forefront of what we do when we're expanding, it's, it's going to make sure that that stays. And really, really, that translates to our work. And then it translates to our client work. Our clients come back and they're very happy. And it's because, you know, and this is the feedback that we've gotten. It's like, wow, like we feel like you genuinely care. And it's, it's like it's a family agency, <laughs> even though we're not. And so I think that, that by mixing, by um, sort of getting personalities that work really well together, you really can um, build something great. Now, there's a lot of women who listen to the podcast who are entrepreneurs. Some of them have their own companies. Some of them are just starting. But if you were to give advice to women specifically, because that's primarily who's listening, mm-hmm. about you know creating that equality in their lives, in their business, in what they're doing, how would you express to them how to do that. Do you mean equality in hiring practices or just in general? In general, like if it's, you know, say there's um, a young white woman and she's like, I've never had to even deal with any of this. It's not even, wasn't even on my radar till just right now. Just this conversation. And all of a sudden, because I think that's a lot of times what happens is you go along your merry way and then all of a sudden you, you know, come across a book or a podcast or an article and you're like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think it's just no what you don't know. Nobody knows everything. Um, and that that extends to sort of like racial and things like it, racial situations and things like that. So our team's pretty diverse, but I have a white guy on my team. And that's because there's a perspective that he brings to things that I just, I just don't get, you know, like I'm, my entire narrative and everything I think about is around these issues, but I, he actually brings in a perspective that is unique to me and 
that I can learn from. The more you know, the better, and the more people you have on your team that are filling in those knowledge gaps, which again, different perspectives from different cultures and backgrounds and um, income levels and things like that, like that's actually going to grow your team. And that's actually going to benefit you in the long run from a dollars and cents perspective. I guarantee it. You know, as you're saying that it really clicked in my mind because I can actually even see that in a personal level and thinking about the more people you surround yourself with that have a different perspective than you do, that are coming from a different background, even maybe different age range, yes. then you have you know all of these different experiences that you get to glean from and you get to learn. And it's not just about what you know. Right. And, right. and that, you know, I think is amazing for, for all of us even to, to learn about empathy, you know, on the human level mm-hmm. and just personally is to, you know, ask questions and be curious and, you know, really put yourself in a, in a position to learn and not just to, to teach but to see what it is that you don't know already, which I love. So that so as soon as you said that, it really clicked to me. I was like, oh, I get it. So get it now. Good. Yeah. So I'm getting I'm getting some clicks. I like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think as entrepreneurs too, there's like this little sort of ego piece, right? Where it's like tough sometimes to admit that you don't know certain things. And so we pretend like we know things um, and hope we figure it out along the way. Like that's an okay strategy, but I think that the much smarter strategy is to be like, I don't know this. That's cool. Just like, you know, the old adage, like surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. It's the same thing. Like surround yourself with people who know more things than you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you are the smartest person in the room, you need to change rooms. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I've, I've learned that as I go, you know, I love to hang around young people because I think it keeps me mm-hmm. fresh and, and also, you know, cool. and, and yeah, if that, <laughs> I hope so. But I also love to hang out with women who are, who are older because they also have their experience that I can draw on. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, on one end I'm drawing from experience and on the other end I'm drawing from um, this freshness and, you know, I'm realizing the more mature I become that I don't know everything and I don't need to know everything. But if I surround myself with people who do, I'm all the better for it. So that, you know, that is important. And I think for, for all of us, I think that's something that we need to do is, is find people who really do rub those edges off us and make us better. Absolutely. I think that uh, for me, um, you know, not just having a diverse team, but diversifying my network has been huge. And and you mentioned the age component, which I think is not talked about often when it should be, because especially with technological advances, like sometimes it feels like the difference between me and someone in high school is so huge or or me and someone who's 20 years older than me, whereas at one point it probably wouldn't have felt that way. I make a point, I literally will have conversations with high schoolers even about the tech they're using and what's cool and what's not cool, partly because I want to seem cool, but (laughs) also because I think it's important that I know these things. And then the same kind of conversations with people much older than myself so that I know where everyone is. And then I'm able to sort of like you know, know a little about everything and it really sort of helps things. And I think that translates into a lot of our strategies and it allows us to speak to different audiences much better. Yeah. You know, um, I think that is so valuable because even the way we communicate 
generationally is different. And, yes. uh, you know, whereas the baby boomers would have written, you know, dear Andrea, and then this whole, you know, letter, you know, signed so-and-so. Um, and then it was, what's up? Yeah. The millennials are like <laughs> one word text, you know? Yeah. And, and in the baby boomer, when they receive that back, even in a work environment, they're like, that's so rude, disrespectful. But the millennials thinking, yeah, I heard what you said. I, I get it. And I'm doing it. Yeah. And their answer, but, and they don't mean to be disrespectful, but I think when we start to learn the differences of how we communicate as well, and that translates far beyond generations, but, you know, men and women, different cultures, all, everything, you know, we have to learn that, you know, we have, have different experiences. We've grown up in different eras. We um, have different ways of thinking and it's okay. You know, that's cool. Not yeah, that exactly. Right. There's not one right way to do it, but we have to kind of ask questions and say, what did you mean by that? Like, uh, what does that emoji actually mean? <laughs> you know, like in this conversation. And I mean, yeah. And even if you're like in the younger generation and your uh, way of thinking is cool now, it's not going to be in about five minutes. And so you just have to be okay with that. Um, that's why for us in the communications industry, it's such an important and interesting time because everything is fluid. I mean, a lot of agencies will speak just to a certain demographic, but then the second a client is, is looking after, say, a younger demographic or an older dem demographic, it just it doesn't quite translate. And that's why you'll also find there are a lot of ad and marketing campaigns that fall flat and are inauthentic. And it's because of this inability to sort of switch between generations. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think we all need to work on in our communications. Now, you mentioned that you're a mom and, you know, there's been a journey that you've had with that. And I want to ask you a question about what kind of legacy you want to leave. And what you want to be your story. Can you share with me if you could pass anything down generationally, what would it be? That is such a loaded, heavy question. <laughs> um, no, I don't even know if I think about it. I think honestly, it's a lot of what we discussed. I think every person before me generationally has done so much. My great grandfather was a slave. So, you know, every generation has worked really hard. I don't see myself any more important in my background and it's it's completely understandable because of the way history has played out everyone's been super risk averse and i think that has created sort of a, a glass ceiling for us and so hopefully um i'll be the person in our family that kind of sheds those things and so that my daughter moving forward really is limitless and i for sure it helps that she's half white I'm just kidding. See, no, <laughs> see like, do I? See, you don't know. I have this terrible sense of humor, and then people are so uncomfortable. They're like, now I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I was just kidding. No, I, and I appreciate you. There was like that little pause of that like, pause of like, oh God, what have we done? This podcast is over. <laughs> No, you know what? I love that you're bringing this up, and I love that we get to have the conversation, and that it's okay for, you know, me to ask questions. It's okay because I mean, here's the real deal. You're brown from South Africa. I'm white from Canada. I think my roots go back to England and Wales. So I'm basically as, you know, <laughs> white as you can get. Yeah. And I'm in my forties. I think you're in your twenties. 
Yes. And so we come from different, totally different backgrounds, different generations. And yet there's so much of what we deal with that when we really boil it down is similar. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're telling your story and I'm like, yeah, I have a story like that too. And I think that's important for us to realize is that when you really get to know people, when you really ask questions and when we really understand, like, I think I'm getting what you're saying about the um, equality through empathy. When we start to realize that the person next to us is really so similar. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we don't have to compete against one another. It's not, you know, whose story is better, or who, who went through more, or how much more you've overcome versus I've overcome. We're all in this together. Absolutely. And I mean, everyone's got a story, right? Like everyone's, and it goes back to empathy. Like, I don't think, you know, I don't think my challenges are any, I don't know, better than anyone else's. Like, if that makes sense, I think that it's important to embrace what everyone's been through. And um, one of the ways that I do that personally actually is through humor. So I joke a lot about race issues and things like that. And it makes people very uncomfortable. Exhibit A, you, five (laughs) minutes. (laughs) But I think it's important to be able to just openly talk about these things, right? Because I think that once we're able to be comfortable enough with each other to have these conversations is when we'll start to see these things really dissipate. Right. And, and we'll see a shift, a huge shift. And I, and I hope that for the next generation that they are, you know, more keenly aware of the people around them and really accepting of who they are, no matter what they believe, uh, no matter where they come from, what they've been through, because I think that's just so, so important. And I feel like, you know, even people listening that you have a story to tell and that, that what your life does matter and the obstacles that you are currently facing, you can overcome. And Nesh is definitely a great example of that. I mean, she could probably tell us stories for hours. I know that there's a lot of things I (laughs) I did not even hit on. And um, I have a list of things that I did not even ask you. So I really appreciate coming on and sharing and really kind of enlightening me. Also really just sharing a bit of your journey. Now, I would love for you to tell the listeners like where they can find you. Probably the best way to learn a bit more about what Press Play is doing is on our website, pressplay.com. So P-R-E-S-S, play, which is my last name. P-I-L-L-A-Y.com. Um, also a good way to find me. Totally. If you want to find me on social, I'm hilarious. Yes. Um, my Twitter handle is at Nash and my Instagram is at nplay1. Uh, and you can find me, um, you know, online, on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. Um, I'm not, not because I'm important, but just because I embrace social media. Nash, it's been a delight to chat with you and to share your story. So thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. Yes, thank you for having me. It's really been lovely. It doesn't, it's just been like a talk with an old friend. Okay, friends. So that was quite the conversation that Nash and I had. And I can honestly say that there were many times within the conversation that I was at a loss for words, which doesn't always come that difficult for me to find the words to say, but You know, one of the things that I really realized during the conversation was how much I don't know and how much I need to learn. And I think that having these kinds of conversations with people really opens our eyes to 
what other people are going through and what challenges they face and what obstacles they've had to overcome in their own lives. And I think that's important in learning empathy and in learning how we can be better business people, better moms, better people in general, and how to have better relationships. It's not so much about talking, it's more about listening, asking the right questions, and really being curious about other people. And so I wanna be more curious, and I wanna learn about what I can do to be more empathetic, to really broaden my own horizons. And even as I was sharing some of my personal stories, I started to realize that I've got a long way to go. And even though I've become a little bit more generous as I've gotten older, I still have a long way to go. And I have to learn to relinquish some things that really I don't need and I don't need to carry with me. And changing that narrative around my life and helping others to do the same. And so I have a question for you. What can you do? How can you make that switch in your own life? How can you become a little bit more empathetic in your world? in the community that you live in? Who are the people that you are surrounding yourself with? Are they different ages? Are they different ethnicities? Do they believe differently than you are? Or are they all the same? And I challenge myself to do the same, to really learn from the people who may be different. And it's kind of scary because you don't know where they're coming from. And oftentimes that feels like that can be a tricky place to be, but it's okay. And how can you start changing your perspective on equality and empathy? I think we all have a lot to learn about equality and empathy. I know I sure do. And it's a challenge to myself to really get involved with organizations and people who I don't really know much about so that I can learn, so that I can hear their stories and so I can lend a hand. And you know, it's not even about what I can give because I know that I'm gonna get so much back from them because they have so much to teach me about life and about love and about acceptance. And so I wanna encourage you to do the same, to find an organization in your own community that you can get involved with. Maybe it's your local church, perhaps it's an organization that helps uh, women get out of sexual trafficking. Maybe it's an organization that helps young people to really realize their full potential. Whatever it is, find some organization that you can become a part of. And let's all learn to be a little bit more empathetic to the people that are around us. I have loved this conversation and I know that it's just really scratching the surface. So thanks, Nash, for being a guest and for sharing your life and your story and for really opening up this opportunity for me to talk about it here on the Courage Cast and for us all to think a little differently. Now, before I go today, I want to say a huge thank you to those of you who have already become supporters on the Patreon page. Your spirit of generosity is honestly what keeps us going. And whether it's $2 or $20, it really doesn't matter the amount. Just the fact that you are sewing into this community really warms my heart and it helps us to keep the podcast going and keep the production value high. So thank you so much to those of you who've already jumped onto the Patreon page and are giving. If you haven't already, you can check it out at 
patreon.com forward slash the courage cast. And we give you bonus episodes and even some behind the scenes videos. And there's going to be some great content that comes your way as a way of saying thank you. And also to cultivate community here on the courage cast. So thank you so much. You know, friends, I love doing this podcast and I love being with you and hanging out with you. So thanks for being with me today. And thank you, Nash, for this beautiful conversation and opening the door to something that we can all explore within our lives. And that is empathy and equality. And until next time, remember, you have everything you need to live bravely. If you like this episode of The Courage Cast, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a rating and review, and while you're there, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Original music and production by Stephen Crilly.